This is Salt and Spine. Everybody's looking for chicken. It's always the number one search for food. Chicken, chicken dinners, how to cook chicken. I realized that if my passion is solving problems for busy home cooks, then giving them chicken solutions is definitely a helpful thing. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you right now. It's also a perfect time to join an online cookbook club, diving into a new or beloved cookbook with folks around the country. You can find more information on how to support authors and bookstores, as well as which books are being featured in this month's cookbook clubs, on our Instagram page, at Salt and spine. Now, this week is our 80th show, and for the first time ever, our guest today is joining us virtually from her home in Brooklyn. Since we launched Salt and Spine two years ago, we've always been joined by our guests at our studio inside San Francisco's Civic Kitchen Cooking School. But as we're all adapting to social distancing, that means we too are going virtual for the time being. We look forward to having our authors back in the studio soon, but for now, we appreciate you tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. And you just heard from today's guest, Stacy Billis. Stacy is a food writer whose award-winning blog, One Hungry Mama, was considered one of the first food blogs focused on parents and feeding your family. Since blogging, Stacy has been the founding food editor-in-chief at the Cool Mom Picks content network, and she shares her life as the, quote, family cook with recipes and tips on social media. Stacy is also one of the voices behind the popular podcast Didn't I Just Feed You, a show about feeding families, which she co-hosts with Megan Splawn, associate food editor for thekitchen.com. And of course, she's a cookbook author. Stacy's first book, Make It Easy, focused on shortcuts using store-bought ingredients. And her latest winner-winner chicken dinner is all about how to harness the flavor and versatility of, you guessed it, chicken. In today's show, we're talking with Stacy about how a background in child development led to her career in food writing, the popularity of chicken, now the most consumed protein in the U.S., and some tricks for flavorful and juicy chicken, and of course about her foray into podcasting, which cookbook authors she turns to as a home cook, and much more. Of course, we're also playing a chicken-themed game with Stacy. Don't miss that. And we have featured recipes from Winner Winner Chicken Dinner for you to make at home. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Stacy Billis joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Stacy. How are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm holding up. I feel like that's as good as anyone can be doing right now. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining us remotely here on Salt and Spine, a new a new era of Salt and Spine. Woo! Yes. I'm helping you usher it in. I like that. Yes. Thank you. And we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, Winner Winner Chicken Dinner, um, which I love. But first, we want to talk a little bit about you. So let's let's start at the beginning. I think you grew up in New Jersey. Is that right? I did. I did. I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Um, both of my parents are Greek immigrants, and it's a very Greek, traditional Greek story. My dad came over and got pulled into the restaurant business from other relatives who had already come to the United States. So he worked in restaurants for a long time and eventually opened his own. And that's, I grew up in restaurants. I remember as early (laughs) going all the way back, I was seating people at the restaurant. I was back, you know, in the kitchen, like watching all the chefs do their thing. So I like grew up in restaurant life, basically. 
That's amazing. So food was a big factor of your life when you were a kid. Huge, huge. And I, my dad used to tell me that his favorite memory was that I used to order these huge prime ribs. And I was like, mm, like let's do this. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Always a big eater. <laughs> yeah, I love a kid who orders prime rib. Yeah. Um, but you weren't really thinking about food as a career? Or did I hear that maybe your dad was sort of pushing you away from food as a career? The latter? Yeah, my dad <laughs> pushed me away. So um, my brother actually went to culinary school. Okay. And then I was kind of curious to, you know, I wanted to visit him. I wanted to see what it was about. And my dad was like, no, like, I don't think you should do that. So I ended up going to Vassar College, which is a liberal arts college here on the East Coast um, in New York State. And I studied sociology. I left. I spent a couple of years like doing all different things like PR and this and that. And then I was like, okay, I think I want to go back to culinary school. I knew I was going to be paying for graduate school, unlike college. My parents committed to that. And then I don't know, I just got kind of cold feet and I ended up making a completely different decision. And I went to school for child development. I went to teacher's college at Columbia University. But in that track, I wanted to do children's media and my senior thesis was on food and I kept wanting to come back to creating food media. So from there, I went to Sesame Workshop where I worked for years and I worked in children's television. And I was always looking for that like cool food show for kids or what would it be? But, you know, it never went in that direction. But when I had my first kid, Isaac, who's 13 now, and I was like, okay, not going to step away from television production. I was like, this is finally my opportunity to get into food. And that's when I pivoted back to my original interest, but in a completely different way that was informed by this child development background that I had garnered. Sure. And when you went into the child development master's program, mm-hmm. were you thinking about food as a component of that? I really, I was, but I didn't know how it would play out, but that was always my passion. Yeah. And one of the things that I was interested in This was in an era when people were really looking at educational television for kids. And even before I had Isaac, you know, parents were thinking about how are toys developmentally appropriate? How is television developmentally appropriate? It had kind of moved into the mainstream conversation of parenting. And I thought it was really interesting that food is so central to our lives, yet nobody was talking about developmentally appropriate food and the relationship between child development, the development of healthy habits and food and how we feed our children. So that is eventually what became my passion and my focus, but it took me a little while to get there. It was sort of in the back of my head during graduate school. Sure. And you have two sons. I do. (laughs) Isaac and Oliver. I imagine they're like the best fed children in Brooklyn. Is that fair? Well, I don't know about the best. We have a lot of great food writers and recipe developers here in Brooklyn. But I will say, you know, we're in quarantine right now. Mm -hmm. And I made something. Actually, I made the fried chicken sandwich. We've been making that on regular from winter, winter chicken dinner. Yeah. And the second time I served it, it was a week and a half between the two. And Isaac looked at me and said, "Um, didn't we eat this already? (laughs) I was like, I, yeah, a week and a half ago, but they're just like used to me always whipping up something new and doing something different. So sometimes it like it treads on obnoxious. I, they don't sure. mean it, but <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> or I get feedback. I get like, mm, 
this is like a tiny bit salty mom. Like, I don't know that I would do it that way. That's so funny. They seem so attentive because there's an anecdote in your book too about one of your sons saying that they don't feel like they have comfort foods because you're always cooking new recipes and not repeating things. And then the one time you repeat a fried chicken sandwich, they call you out. (laughs) Exactly. You can never win. Yeah. So you've really carved out this niche for yourself in cooking as a parent and feeding your family, feeding yourself, feeding your kids. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing parents today? I mean, sort of broadly. Yeah. Obviously, now we're dealing with like people who are quarantined and unique circumstances. So there's sort of two elements here. But like, what are the challenges that people face today? So I think that the number one challenge is that parents are very judgmental of each other around how we feed our kids. I think that there's so, so much pressure on parents, how we cook, what we're supposed to cook, how we're supposed to feed our kids. And a lot of that feels um, self-generated, but self in all caps, not like us doing it to ourselves, but the community putting that pressure on each other. I think food is very emotional. It's very personal. Um, but in the last 10 years, really, I started blogging when Isaac was a baby. And back then, I actually, my blog became popular back then because I was using organic mm-hmm. in conjunction with kids' food, family food all the time. And there was really very few people out there doing the same. So I just got all the SEO juice. Like that's how quickly we went from just feeding our kids whatever and like jarred baby food and to having these like, you know, crazy (laughs) polarized ways of life and social media and information and um, everything around food and how we feed our kids. So I do think finding a way to forge your own path and like not listen to the noise and then also support other parents and how they're feeding their kids because there's such a difference in the access to information in our budgets and our time constraints that I, I really try to come from a place of every parent is doing their best. Yeah. Um, and I think that gives us a lot of freedom to find joy in cooking again, to let go a little bit, to not get hung up on like the nutritional value of every single meal, to look at the bigger picture. And one of the things that I always say is we're not trying to raise kids who love kale and quinoa. That's not the point. The point is to raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And so much of that comes from just like rediscovering your joy in the kitchen, being willing to cook, being lackadaisical in the kitchen sometimes, you know, pulling the kids in, letting things get messy. Yeah. I love that approach. It's hard. I'm not saying it isn't hard. (laughs) It is. Yes, totally. Did you see your cooking and your relationship with cooking change when you became a parent? I think a lot of people, and I'm a new parent, so for people who love to cook, adding the stressful elements of raising a child can sometimes make making a meal seem more stressful than it ever did before. Did you sort of go through that process? And how did your relationship to cooking change or evolve as a parent? Yeah. So I was approached to write my first book way before I actually published it. But I was on this journey and I kind of knew it that had a lot to do with my child's development and where I was in my sort of parenting development. So when Isaac was first born, I became nuts about like, everything has to be organic. 
I found one of my original recipes on my first blog and I called for organic baking soda. (laughs) What is that? Like, I just put the word organic in front of everything. I was like, I need him to be healthy. We're going to be the best. I'm going to do the best by him. You know, and then I had a second kid Mm -hmm. and I started working more and things got crazier. So this ride I went on where I was like a control freak, I wanted everything to be just right, to letting go. I sort of discovered how judgmental I was being of other parents and how judged I felt over the course of several years. And it wasn't until I had some distance on that that I was able to share the perspective that I just shared, write my first book, and also relax a little in the kitchen. Yeah. Realize that like, if I don't have time tonight and they eat hot dogs, that's fine. Um, And how worthwhile it is for me to also find time to go in the kitchen and do what I used to do before kids, like make a mole sauce, you know, with my molcajete and do uh-huh. it like for real and um, make handmade tortillas or whatever it was to find my pleasure. And it's sort of, it will all balance out, but it's really hard. I mean, I have a podcast called Didn't I Just Feed You? Yeah. And the name literally comes from the fact that my co-host and I have said that several times over. It's it's unrelenting feeding kids. Yeah. So like knowing when to cut yourself a break and knowing when to find your joy and when to just like feed them whatever and let it go, I think are really important lessons. But they were they were hard earned for me, if I'm completely honest. Yeah. And I have a new lesson because now I have a 13 year old who can go out with his own money and buy what he wants. And I will find we're still like not so into junk food every once in a while, I'm not crazy about it, but his pockets will be filled with like candy wrappers and talkie. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, or what'd you eat for lunch today? I don't know, like a bagel. And it like, it's, it hurts a little, but it's an, it's another phase of like letting go and letting it be. Yeah. It's hard. And it's hard. (laughs) You know, I went through (laughs) middle school eating a pack of chocolate donuts and a Coke for lunch every day. And I turned out just fine. So <laughs> I know I love stories like that. And my husband actually reminds me too, because he was an insanely picky eater. They had to give him enriched pasta and enriched pasta sauce. Uh-huh. Cause that's literally all he would eat for years. And now he eats sweet breads and he loves restaurants and he has a wonderful palate. So yeah. Yeah. People can evolve. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned your podcast too. Um, didn't I just feed you? I've been happy to be a guest of yeah. yours a couple of times now. Yep. It's such a fun podcast. Um, going back to sort of the story of your food career and your food media path, how did you decide to launch this podcast? I actually don't know the backstory of this. And I'm really yeah. curious because I heard it's just like, you actually only met Megan once before yeah. deciding to <laughs> Megan is your co-host. Yep. Yeah. Tell us how that happened. It's funny because I feel like all these projects I've done over the years have been so intentional. And then this is the one thing that hasn't been that's like grown faster and bigger (laughs) than any of them. And I can hardly keep up with it. So I was at a food conference and my co-host Megan walked up to me and I was actually talking to somebody else. I don't know if she remembers this part. It'll be funny when she listens. Because I remember talking to someone else and she stood there and she was like, and just like waiting. 
And the person I was speaking with must have connected with her earlier and was like, oh, hey, Megan. She's like, hi, actually, I'm here to talk to Stacy now. And I was like, oh, taken back. <laughs> like, hi, how are you? <laughs> and it took me a second to realize who she was because on Instagram, her handle was something else. It was Stir and Scribble. Now it's her name. Uh -huh. But I was like, oh, like it took me a minute. But in all the time that my gears were turning and I was trying to figure out who she was, she somehow introduced herself, said, let's get a drink. Oh, wait, do you want to get dinner instead? And we were like getting a cab to go <laughs> to go off and have a dinner together. <laughs> it was like one, two, three. And after, you know, several whiskeys, she was like, I've been wanting to start a podcast and I think you should be my co-host. Now, the funny part of the story is she seems like the one who like went and like got me and made it all happen. But after she asked, I said yes right away. And I was like, you better watch out because I'm going to call you tomorrow. Like, this is really happening. Right. So yeah. if you're drunk, you're going to be sorry. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, no, of course. But then when she retells the story, she's always like, and then she called me the next day. <laughs> like, oh, no, I have to do this. So it just really happened like that. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out because it's a great podcast. You have a great rapport. I love listening to it. <laughs> Um, let's turn to the book. So Winner, Winner, yeah. Chicken Dinner is your new cookbook. I love it. Um, let's start with some context. You drop some facts yeah. right off the bat about how much Americans love chicken these days, right? Uh, you know, I was going back and forth with Story, the publisher of this book, and they kept saying, you know, chicken is like overtaking beef as the number one most selling protein. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. Like, do people really want a whole cookbook about chicken? But I know also from working on digital food sites and Megan, my co-host on the podcast also works for kitchen.com. Like it's a thing that with SEO, everybody's looking for chicken. It's always the number one search for food. Chicken, chicken mm -hmm. dinners, how to cook chicken. And as I thought about it, I realized that if my passion is solving problems for busy home cooks, in particular parents, but really all busy home cooks, then giving them chicken solutions is definitely a helpful thing. From there, it was a really interesting process, though, because chicken is like, a, you know, it's like a huge blank canvas. Sure. So once I was like, we were approved, we're going to do it, we're going to write a chicken cookbook. I was like, should it be international by country? Like, should it be like crazy wacky? Should it be elevated? Because there are so many chicken recipes out there that are like, you know, chicken tacos and like dump and stir in your Instant Pot. You know, where do I want to land with this? Sure. And for me, that was more the biggest like soul searching process. You know, once I realized how much and it really clicked for me, how much people cook chicken and are looking for chicken recipes, deciding on a book was easy. But what would the book offer? That was a lot harder. Yeah. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Stacey Billis, author of Winner Winner Chicken Dinner. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Allison Roman to today's guest, Stacey Billis, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt 
inspiring community today and support our efforts to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com/saltandspine. Salt and Spine is also proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Stacy Billis, author of Winner Winner Chicken Dinner. I imagine too, you note this in the introduction that there's a misconception around chicken sometimes that for some people who pick up your cookbook might come into this with an idea that chicken turns out bland or is, ends up being boring or is dry and overcooked. Was that like a, a through line for you? I mean, I know you note it in the intro to your book. Yeah. But I wonder how much that was sort of present in your mind when you were thinking about that. Like, did you try to think about changing a misconception? Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's so funny because I feel like searches for chicken recipes are number one, but then complaints about chicken are also number one. Yeah. (laughs) So when I, you know, when I talk about what I have figuring out what the book really needed to be about and how to make it compact and accessible and something people could really keep on their kitchen counter, dog ear, get dirty, you know, it's a very casual book and that was by design. I realized that I didn't want to do like an America's Test Kitchen style compendium where Uh it's like, here's the tome. Here's everything in the world you want to know about chicken. There is a time and a place for a book like that. There have been books written like that. I'm sure there will be in the future. I decided to stay away from that and to really hone in on quick, easy flavor And then this idea of keeping it juicy. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of through lines in the book. One is cooking temperature and one is dry brining. Uh So without getting too nerdy about it, you know, I wanted the book to follow FDA or is it USDA? I always forget guidelines on temperature. Sure. And they recommend 165 degrees internal temperature, which is really high, like really high. If you can get it right there after your chicken has rested, it'll be fine. It won't be dry. It won't be rubbery. But to do that is very difficult. So I did spend some time in the beginning of the book and notating throughout the book that you want to have a thermometer. I know it sounds like all techie to people who don't normally cook, but actually use it. And for people who listen to your podcast who might be um, much more experienced home cooks, like pull out the thermometer, like it's super helpful. So I do note that I use a lower temperature when I'm cooking chicken for myself. I use like 140 to 145 for boneless, skinless pieces. um, And I use more like 150, 155 for bone and skin on pieces. Uh But like to do it right means really like taking the temperature. I can give you as a cookbook author, I can give you uh, oven temp and timing, but every oven's different. Sure. So I do kind of hammer on that over and over because I think internal temperature is key to making chicken taste good, especially if you're going to insist on cooking with those boneless, skinless pieces. Yeah. When you're approaching a book like this, you're talking already about like the volume of chicken recipes that exist. Like there's so much chicken. How do you sort of think about recipe testing 
Were there things that were just like total flops? Did your family like insist on not eating chicken again after you were done creating this book? Like, <laughs> what was your process like of winnowing this down yeah. and finding the winners? Yeah, it was it was a challenge. We ate a <laughs> lot of chicken. Everybody yeah. kept making jokes about being sick of chicken, but I have to admit. And it's a little embarrassing for some reason, but we didn't really get sick of chicken, which to me really spoke to the versatility of it. Like, oh, I, I knew that in the back of my head and everybody else must too, because we keep buying it over and over. But actually, like we, it was delicious. Like there's so many ways that you can make it. Yeah. I had several categories in my head. I had a cu- one category and I knew there wouldn't be tons of recipes like this, but ones where I was just really experimenting. But in the ones where I really experimented and kind of went out there and just like, well, let me just play with this random set of flavors and see if it works. Um, I only wanted a few of those and I knew that they also had to be easy. They couldn't be experimental and be very difficult because I really want every busy home cook to be able to grab this and make something from it. Yeah. What were some of the ones that came out of that? Yeah. So um, I, you know, I should remember my titles more, but there's a pineapple chicken salad with green beans and toasted coconut. Uh huh. Um, that was one that I really love. Then there was a category of like international chicken flavors because Mm -hmm. Like so many cuisines work with chicken. And I do have a little section about authenticity and ease. I know authenticity, authentic, it's a very tricky word in food media, but I really felt the need to address that, you know, my experience with making Indian curries is fairly limited. It's not the food of my childhood, for example. Sure. But you know, there are, there are a couple of things. One is what kind of food did I grow up with? I grew up with Greek food. I grew up with a lot of, um, Caribbean, Puerto Rican food because I'm in the tri-state area, a lot of Italian American food. So I drew from those because I felt like I had a personal connection to them. And then they're just cuisines that I've fallen in love with as I've developed as a recipe developer and food editor. Those I drew from, but I really wanted to make sure that in the, uh, international category, if you will, that I had a personal connection. Okay. And then there were just like fun, kid-friendly stuff like chicken Parmesan meatballs, Yeah, you know, a fast food style chicken sandwich. Um, you know, those just seemed like no brainers to me. Yeah. That's awesome. I made your Indian style fried chicken thighs which I made too much of and repurposed as sandwiches the next day. And they were delicious as sandwiches too (laughs) on some potato rolls. Yeah. You start, you recommend right at the beginning of the book, buying whole chickens and breaking them down yourself. Can you tell us why you recommend that versus buying pieces, which a lot of people I think tend to do? It's first of all, it's less expensive. Mm -hmm. I think now um, if people are still staying at home more, if quarantine goes on much longer, it is hard to find, you know, the cuts of chicken and the brands that maybe you're used to. So learning how to be flexible with chicken so that you have a reliable protein that you know how to work with, but being able to like break it down and use it in new and novel ways, I think is really important. And actually, I think that's important even in your regular cooking outside of quarantine, because it's part of what keeps this protein that you cook so frequently fresh and feeling new and like it's not the same thing over and over. And, you know, 
whole chickens are more affordable. They're often easier to find for me, you know, air chilled, free range. Um, also, when you have kids, and this is very specific to parents, you can, like, if your little one only likes boneless, skinless chicken breasts, but you like dark meat pieces with skin on bone in, you can create that with one bird. You can, like, take out the chicken breast, cook that for them, and cook the rest of the bird for you the way you like it. I think sure. it just offers you a little more flexibility. Yeah. Do you have other tips or tricks? Buying whole chickens is one of them. I know you offer a suggestion about what to do with butter as well, but what are some of your like tricks for making chicken pop in your home? What I really think is a big deal is creating leftovers on purpose. Yeah. So I do a ton of poaching chicken and I tend to do it like at the end of my week. It's not like I'm not a master meal prepper where on Sunday I'm prepping everything, but I'll find myself like low on time, low on energy, just ready to go into the weekend and relax. And so I included recipes for poaching chicken um, with the bone in and also boneless because I wanted people to be able to take whatever they had left in the fridge poach it, shred it, and then be able to do stuff with it. So that's a really big one. Butter is a really big one. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I think that butter is the key to making chicken delicious Uh (laughs) in the oven. Um, And so I talk a lot about compound butters and give ideas for different combinations. Because basically you can make that ahead of time and then you can kind of slather it on anything. I mean, you can even take that poached chicken I was just talking about that you shredded, take a little compound butter that you made, and it can be made with cilantro and jalapenos, or it can be made with the classic French flavors, you know, shallots and tarragon. Right. Um, And just throw it in a pan and saute it up and put it over like rice with white beans or something like that. I mean, it's just, it. I think... If the reason why we're buying chicken is because it's versatile and convenient, then let's do things with it that enhance versatility and enhance convenience. Sure. I love your leftover suggestion. And just to be clear for folks, you're you're poaching the chicken with the purpose of turning it into something yes. else for leftovers. You're not taking totally. chicken that you've made in some other way throughout the week and finding a way to reuse it. You're intentionally totally. making leftovers. I am. Which I, I love, love. that. I love. So obviously we're a show on cookbooks. I like to get a sense of where you get inspiration. Are there particular author, cookbook authors or even specific cookbooks that have been important to you either through the course of your career or in your personal life? Yeah. So I actually, on Didn't I Just Feed You, got to interview Melissa Clark recently. And I love her. She's a fellow Brooklynite. Um And she is one of my favorite food writers, recipe developers of our time. Yeah. Right in this moment. She just makes, I I think that my food tends to be a lot more playful, maybe even a little bit more accessible. But what I love is that she takes very elevated flavors and dishes. Her latest book is all about, have you spoken to her yet about her latest book? Not about her latest book. She had to postpone her Bay Area tour, so... Ah, she'll be there. She'll be there. She'll be there. Um, but her latest is dinner in French, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know. And, you know, French cuisine has this reputation for being, you know, uh, elevated cuisine and she makes it so accessible. You get all those flavors and even all of that sophistication, which 
I really appreciate because I like to sit at my table and feel fancy. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, the example she gave when we were speaking to her is that, you know, she wants ratatouille, but she doesn't want to do like the long and slow and the pot. So she'll just do it all in a sheet pan. Yeah. And that's brilliant for busy cooks who are really my audience and the people who I'm always looking out for. So she's a huge inspiration. Yeah. And going way back when to when I started this, Mark Bittman. Uh I've always been a really big Mark Bittman fan. Um, He has a very, again, like simple but flexible approach. And I feel like, you know, how to cook everything is that cookbook that I just pull off my shelf and give to my 10-year-old. And he's like, okay, here, let's do this. Yeah, that's awesome. I think those are both excellent picks and both very on brand. They make really yes. accessible, <laughs> easy, but yeah. delicious recipes. Yeah. I know you grew up in restaurants. Did you, were cookbooks a part of your childhood? Like, did your parents rely on cookbooks or no? No, not at all. Yeah. Actually. I mean, I don't even know. I'm thinking back to our bookshelves. I don't even think we had cookbooks on the bookshelves. Uh-huh. So my mother was not a big cook at all. Okay. She's actually not even very into food. One of my favorite stories is that, you know, she was a single mom, hairdresser, worked on her feet all day, uh, was always very exhausted by the time she came home. And some nights I'd be like, what's for dinner? And she would like pull out a can of sardines. She's Greek from Greece. This is a very like unbrand dinner for her. Like Uh pull out the vat of feta and the sardines and some pita bread. And I was an American kid who, you know, probably for a little while, like didn't want to be so Greek. (laughs) And I was like, that is not dinner. Like, like, (laughs) you need to feed me real food. Um, But she just loves really simple food, not into cooking. My grandmother, on the other hand, was an amazing cook. Uh And she just cooked from her little red notebook that, um, that I have somewhere in my house, actually. But, you know, that that was my cookbook. I mean, it was like right. her little notes. And they were half Greek, half English. And all her measurements were based on her cookware. Sure. So, and her, like, drinkware. So when she wrote one cup, she didn't mean right. a cup. She meant one drinking glass. She meant, like, her <laughs> yeah. cup. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's awesome. That's, that's so yeah. great that you have that book, too, that little notebook. It is great. I wish it was a tiny bit more useful. I do when I have more time. I know people in quarantine are saying they have time. I have way less time. (laughs) Yeah. So one day when I have time, I do want to like go through it and really work on translating the recipes. Sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we always end with a little game. So a little card game um, that we're going to do virtually today. So since your book is Winner, Winner, Chicken Dinner, I thought we would put you to the (laughs) chicken test. (laughs) So I removed our, our stack of protein cards because we, we're going to use chicken. Okay. So we'll do a couple rounds and I've got a flavor pile, which is flavors, herbs, spices, that sort of stuff. Okay. Vegetables, self-explanatory, um, and then secret ingredient. So we'll do a couple rounds. Shall I pick one of each? Yeah, why not? Let's see if you can put them all together try it. into one dish. So let's do one of each for the first round and tell us which cut of chicken you would use and how you would how you might bring this into your dish. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. We'll give it a try. Okay. I don't know that I've had enough coffee for this, but or maybe whiskey. I don't know. One of the two. Okay. So flavor we have mustard. Okay. Vegetable we have tomato. Oh, okay. And secret ingredient, we have octopus. Oh, Lord. Uh, that's, that's a really yeah. hard one. So, hard. okay, here's what I'm going to say. 
We're going to do octopus and chicken? I think so, because we're doing a chicken okay. book. Can we do it? Is it possible? Yeah, I can do this. I okay. got this. But I'm going to, it's going to sound deconstructed, but it's not. I'm Greek. Okay. We're going to marinate chicken in a, um, like quickly, a wet brine with a lot of lemon and some oregano. And whenever you put a lot of acid in your marinade, you want to like not let it sit too long. Okay. So like a half hour, otherwise it will get mealy. And I called it a brine, not a marinade because I'm doing high, high, high salt. Okay. Okay. So when it comes out after a half hour, it's going to be really, really deliciously lemon and moist, lemony and moist. I'm going to grill that along with the octopus. Okay. So we're going to have just like grilled chicken, grilled octopus cut like next to each other in a platter. Mm-hmm, little mixed I'm going to cut up. Yeah. A little mixed grill. going to cut up the tomatoes, put feta. And then the mustard, I'm going to use a little bit of it in a vinaigrette. Okay. And I'm going to use that to dress my octopus and the tomato feta salad. Yeah. I love it. A little. <laughs> we got a little Mediterranean vibe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's do another. <laughs> Oh, we have lemon. Oh. Okay. Carrot. All right. And razor clams. Ooh, we're getting a lot of seafood today. Jeez, you know, and seafood um, is like not my... Okay. I feel bad that we're getting proteins and the secret ingredients. So we could take the next one, which is a Szechuan peppercorn. Oh. Szechuan peppercorn and lemon sounds really, really like a Asian-y, like lemon pepper. Um, yeah, we could do, okay. We need a cut of chicken. I'm going to roast it with carrots along the side. Which cut are we using? And I'm going to do a spatchcocked chicken. Okay. (laughs) And I'm going to make a compound butter with the Szechuan peppercorns, the lemon, and what else do I want to put in there? Maybe like a tiny bit of garlic or maybe garlic chili. Just a little bit, because I'm going to like that heat and that tingle from the Szechuan peppercorns, but I still want like another layer of something in there. So let's do lemon, Szechuan peppercorn, and um, garlic chili sauce. Uh Just a touch. We're going to make a compound butter. We're going to rub that all over a spatchcocked bird, also salt and pepper it. We're going to roast it with carrots on the side. Uh And then when we take it out, I really think that the key um, to when you roast things is to make sure to finish them, whether it's chicken or carrots. So we're going to finish with um, a little bit of cilantro and another hit of fresh lemon. Okay. Delicious. And we're roasting the carrots in the same pan. We're roasting it all together. I'm putting the carrots on the side with the spatchcock bird right in the middle. Love it. Love it. Okay. Third third and final (laughs) round. Let's see. Let's see if we can do it. This is like recipe testing when you're like, that's amazing. And then you do it and you're like, oh, what happened there? But we don't have that part. Right. Sometimes we get really obscure ones. (laughs) Um, Okay. Mint, sweet potato, final rounds. And let's hope we don't get a seafood. Oh, and flour tortillas. Oh, with mint. How interesting. Okay. I'm going to do chicken cutlets. I mean, when I see tortillas, I have kids, so you guys have to forgive me. I'm going to go like real like basic quick weeknight meal here. I'm going to dice sweet potatoes into like a small dice so that it cooks in a pan really quickly. I'm going to saute it with like a little bit of butter, a little like chili powder, cumin, all that good stuff. Um, take it out and then do the chicken cutlets that I've cut into thin strips to make it a little easier. 
And we're going to have like a chicken sweet potato taco. Uh-huh. And I'm going to make a mango salsa that includes some mint and cilantro both. And we'll serve that inside the tortillas. Delicious. Mango salsa with mint. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for putting up with this virtual game. (laughs) (laughs) I actually like it because, you know, like I said, ideas can sound great. And like, I don't get put to the test. We didn't cook it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't know. I know. One day we're going to actually make people cook all of these recipes. Yeah, that would be that would be hilarious. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun, Stacey. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. It was so much fun. Thanks, Brian. It's always nice to talk to you and to see you too. Yes. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our producer is Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 